and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, Bent Tree Church. It's good to see you guys here. Thanks for coming. Well, this is that special time of year. In just a, a few weeks, we have our Easter services, and I can't wait for that. If you've never been to a Bent Tree Easter service, this is going to be a blessing to you. And remember, we have our Good Friday service as well. Um, our Easter services this year are 8, 9.30, and 11. Now, I tell you that now because I need you to, to pick one of those. And, and if you don't need child care, come to the 8 a.m. one. Okay, uh, because the other two have child care at those that have got the children's ministry. But make sure you come to one of those and listen, invite people. This is the chance for people that don't go to church each and every week. They, they'll go to church on this stuff. So I would love for you to invite people. Well, my name's Paul, by the way. If you're new, a special welcome to you. So happy to be with you as we open God's Word and the Bible together and study it together. Let's go ahead and get our Bibles out. Something to take notes with will be in the Gospel of John chapter 4. Believe it or not, this is the last week in chapter 4. Um, that just took a year. If you've never done it before, uh, you might want to try opening the Bible app on your smartphone uh, or on your iPad. This is, has all of our notes and, and all of the scriptures that we will use today. And that you can add notes to each scripture there or even add notes to the notes. So just open that Bible uh, app, open its little brown Bible on there, go to the events section down at the bottom right. Uh, look for Bent Tree Church. Among the other churches, you'll see those notes available to you. And speaking of technology, you can also listen to the podcast of our sermons again on Apple Podcast, or even post the entire service on your YouTube or Facebook account. Uh, consider sharing those on your social media account simply to to let people know hey this thing blessed me or even say what blessed you about it and what moment in that service like hey moment 12 you know uh, listen to this well who's got their bibles ready to study let's hold those things up let me see them good job i love to see the room filled with bibles well would you guys bow your heads let's pray together god our father in heaven hallowed be your name. We come to you, brothers and sisters in Christ, the redeemed of the Lord, to worship you in spirit and in truth. God, would you just take our distractions away from us? Help us to leave the worry from the week behind or the week ahead and, and just repent of that worry. God, we want to focus on you. We want to know you, God. Thank you for giving us your spirit to lead us into all truth just a, that the truth that is sufficient for salvation and living a life that's pleasing to you, God. Father, we, we want to bring you glory in how we live. We offer our focus, we offer our attention, um, our thoughts, and may your words have their full effect on us. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we all prayed and said, well, if you're able, would you stand with me in reverence uh, for the public reading of the Word of God. Our text today is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, just after the story of Jesus with the woman at the well, starting in John 4, verse 34, or 43. After two days, he left there for Galilee. 
Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him, saying this, that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed, along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of God. You may be seated. If you remember back a few weeks ago, Jesus had been in Jerusalem, down south where his disciples were baptizing in the name of Jesus. Jesus had been doing the preaching and doing the healing, the miracles, and large numbers of people were beginning to follow Jesus. He takes his, his crew and he heads north then with the intention of going back to this home base area of Cana around the Sea of Galilee. And he cuts through this area of Israel called Samaria, where no Israelites would usually travel. Jews just didn't like Samaritans. In fact, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. But then the last few weeks, we've been examining the story of the woman at the well, digging deep into Jesus' teaching and interaction there. This passage is just after that part. The woman at the well had become this well of life, hadn't she? she? She had been, just like Jesus had said, she'd gone into town and led many to believe in Jesus. And at the request of the townspeople, he stayed there two more days in Sychar, that Samaritan town, teaching them. Well, Jesus heads back north to the place where he'd done his first miracle, the wedding at Cana, where he turned the water into wine. Do you remember that? Let's examine these verses closely. Look in verse 44. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone to the festival. He went again to, the, to Cana of Galilee where he had turned the water into wine. Let's start with this form of this proverb that John reminds us that Jesus had taught. A prophet has no honor in his own country. We see this proverb in the other three synoptic gospels as well, but let's zero in on that word there. The Greek word for this is patrius, and it means the area which you're from, like your hometown. Make sense? 
Now, in the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the word Patras always refers to the town Jesus actually grew up in, Nazareth of Galilee. But notice that John is using this proverb here in Cana. He is not in his hometown of Nazareth. He's in Cana. Now, what, is, what this is saying here is not just the town, but the whole area of Galilee is his native soil. It's his home base. At the same time, remember, Jesus was born in Judea down in Bethlehem, way down south, in, uh, south of Jerusalem in the southern part of the kingdom. Now, why does the apostle John set it up this way? Why go to all this trouble in explaining this, well, seemingly inconsequential detail? The answer is, there are no inconsequential details in Scripture. Think about this. In a sense, Samaria, uh, Samaria had been the foreign soil to Jesus and his disciples. Those weren't Jews there. There was a hatred there. He goes right through it. But now Jesus was back on his home turf, Jewish turf, Jewish soil. He had left Judea in the south, which was also Jewish land, and now he was back in Jewish land again in Galilee. The religious leaders in the south and Jerusalem were already fighting against him and beginning to plot to kill him in the south. And we know from the other synoptic gospels, especially Luke 4, that the people in his hometown had actually tried to kill him. Fascinating story. We'll get there. Our passage begins, though, with Jesus using this old proverb. Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Now, this is key to understanding this passage. What Jesus and his disciples had experienced was this first unqualified success in sharing the gospel unopposed with the people in Samaria, and they had flocked to him. And that was in Samaria where Jesus should have been hated and rejected by everyone there, maybe even killed. Jesus had revealed the same message to them as he had to the people in Judea and in the south and in Galilee and the north by saying, I am the Son of God, where they had tried to kill him. And now something strange is afoot. Look at this, verse 45. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they also had gone to the festival. These people had rejected Jesus before, tried to kill him, and now they're welcoming him back. Why? Well, it tells us. Now, this doesn't mean that they had believed in true saving faith yet, that Jesus is the Messiah. But why were they welcoming him? The Galileans had gone to Jerusalem for Passover. They had seen Jesus cleanse the temple, drive out the money changers. They had seen him do all of these miracles, right? And it's like they're saying to Jesus, well, we didn't know you could do all that stuff. We, we didn't know you could do stuff for us, too. We didn't know you'd be famous. Our hometown boy, he's come home. Remember, they had tried to kill him. On the face of it, it looks like these people now believe in Jesus, doesn't it? But the Apostle John had already let us know way back in John chapter 2 what Jesus had thought of this kind of belief and welcome from the people of Jerusalem. Look back for just a moment, John chapter 2, verse 23. This is just after he's done the clearing out the temple and 
and done miracles. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This describes this divine nature that Jesus has in knowing human hearts. He is truly human and he's truly divine. Two natures, one person. So when Jesus sees this greeting of his own countrymen in Cana, he knows their belief is not based on real faith, is it? They simply want him to do miracles. They want to have him do something for them specifically. Show us a trick, Jesus. Let's read here in verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee where he turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. Now back in Samaria, Jesus really hadn't done any miracles other than telling the woman all her sin that she was guilty of. He had simply preached the good news to them that he had come to save them. They believed. Genuine faith. But now, this welcome the Galileans, his own people, were showing Jesus was dependent on Jesus doing miracles, wasn't it? Word had apparently gotten out about what had transpired down in Jerusalem, even for the people that hadn't gone. And at the first miracle that Jesus done back in Cana of turning water into wine, hardly anybody had seen that. A few disciples, a few servants, his mom. But now that miracle had gone public. And now this royal official has made the trek up from the larger city of Capernaum to this tiny little village because this royal official is, check this out, desperate. We don't know the name of this official, but we can assume from where he's coming from in Capernaum, he's a government bureaucrat in the administration of King Herod, who was not a king by heritage, but rather by appointment from the Romans. You can also assume that he's not, this royal official is not particularly religious. More likely, he's just a secular politician. Makes sense? But he loves his son. He loves his son. This is what we see is, is Herod and this guy had ruled on behalf of the Romans who occupied these areas. Although he claimed Jewish heritage, Herod really wasn't Jewish. This royal official has made this 25-mile trek uphill journey to this mountainous area to see Jesus. Why? Well, look at verse 47 again. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. This is desperation. If you've ever had a sick child, you, you do anything. This guy's terrified. His son is about to die. The Greek word uh, uh, for this right here literally means to implore, to repeatedly get on your knees and beg Jesus to, to heal his son. This, this took some serious humility. This guy had to have some probably big pride going into this. He's a royal official. He's having to beg for help from a, a day laborer, a carpenter's son. This guy doesn't have faith in Jesus as the Messiah yet, does he? He's just heard that Jesus can heal his son, so he's gone there. 
But on top of that, he's so worried because although he thinks Jesus can heal his son, he clearly doesn't realize Jesus can raise the dead. He doesn't know he's the Messiah. Only God can raise the dead. Later, we discovered that he had servants, but he had come to Jesus personally to plead and beg for his the case of his son. Now, before we go any further, we just saw people in Jerusalem and here in Galilee uh, both wanting him to do more miracles. And yet the Samaritans, they don't see Jesus do any miracles, and yet they believe. And we have this guy asking for a miracle. That's why the story of the Samaritan woman is in the book. Do you see this? The Apostle John is showing the world that Jesus They would receive Jesus, but his own people will not receive him. I mean, isn't that what Romans 9, 10, 11 are all about? It's God's sovereign plan to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. That's what we see in Revelations chapter 7, verse 9. God's sovereign plan to save people from every nation, tribe, and tongue depended, listen, on the rejection of Jesus by the majority of Israel who would conspire with the Romans to then crucify him. Now this should blow our minds. That's what the apostle Peter preaches here in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Fellow Israelites, listen to these words. This Jesus of Nazareth was a man arrested, uh, attested sorry, to you by God with miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and kill him. God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by death. Someone say, praise God. That's good stuff right there. You hear what Peter's saying? If you think about it, if there is no rejection of Jesus by the Jews, there would be no crucifixion. Without that, there would be no expiation of sin. No appropriation of God's wrath. There would be no resurrection indicating God's satisfaction if the Jews had not rejected Jesus. Now, this is fulfilling what we read in that first chapter of John, isn't it? Look back at John chapter 1 for a moment when the apostle John said this in chapter 1, verse 11, talking about Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, look at this, not of natural descent, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The Apostle John is writing this book so that we might believe. That's why we call it this series, so that you will believe. Originally, this word of the Gospel of John is reaching out to Hellenistic Jews, those scattered in different countries, that they would realize Jesus is the Messiah. John's writing it originally to the Jews that are scattered. These Jews wanted to see Jesus do a miracle at this juncture. When he's in Cana, he said they didn't, they didn't want him. They wanted to, what he could give them. So watch what Jesus says here to this royal official pleading for the life of his son. 
Verse 48, Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now this sounds harsh, doesn't it? Sounds harsh. And yes, the words are directed at this man, but not just at this man. Look, Jesus is speaking to all the Galileans gathered right there. He's not surprised by them wanting more miracles. He's simply stating a fact of where their unbelief was. Now you you see what's happening is the same thing that I've been guilty of. Maybe you have too. Here it is. Write this down. We should worship and love Jesus for who he is, not only for what he can do for us. Is that right? We should worship and love Jesus for who he is, not only for what he can do for us. You see, this is today, this is us. These guys were following Jesus around because of a fundamentally flawed idea based on getting stuff from Jesus. This is a particularly American brand of Christianity right here. So many times we don't want Jesus, we want what he can give to us. I know I've been guilty of this. Even heaven and eternal life can be this thing we want instead of Jesus. But the truth is, you don't want heaven if you don't want Jesus. I promise you. Here's what... uh, Jesus is here at Cana of Galilee. He had transformed water into wine. Do you remember that? He had been breaking the Old Testament rites of purification and announcing the dawning of this new age of joy had begun because the messianic Savior had come. The bridegroom had come. It would be a sign of his future wedding banquet that he will celebrate with his bride, the church, one day. That's what we saw back then. But that day at the wedding... They just seen new, really good wine and lots of it. The Apostle John is saying, oh, there's so much more to Jesus. Let me tell you. Here's the deal. We see this in so many churches and Christianity throughout history. There can be too much of an interest in just the miracles themselves. I've been here too, folks. This can be spiritually dangerous. Here's what I mean. Miracles cannot compel genuine faith just by seeing them happen. They have this value, don't they? They have a kind of an apologetic value. Apologetic simply means coming up with a, a defense or a justification of a doctrine, right? In other words, the miracles Jesus performs point this guy point to this guy that Jesus is the Christ but they don't in and of themselves don't have the ability to save the miracles don't and Jesus sees all these people wanting stuff for him and trusting him but not really by faith in him as the Christ but that he is a miracle worker I mean the real genuine faith is what was he was talking about to Nicodemus if you'll remember he says you must be what born again to enter the kingdom of heaven Later on, in John chapter 11, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, people see a guy that's been in the grave four days. You remember, it has that line, Arthur says, he stinks by now. Or in the King James, he stinketh by now. 
guy's been in the dead, grave four days. They see Jesus raise this guy back to life. And although some place their faith in Jesus has seen that as the Christ, some of those same witnesses that see a dead guy come back to life, they don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah. They go straight to the Pharisees and rat Jesus out. And then the Pharisees go, man, if we don't stop this, they're going to all follow him. we got to kill this guy. Apologetics can encourage faith, but only God can give faith to a person. No one is ever argued into the kingdom of God. They're just not. Jesus says to be saved, they must be what? Born again. Back to the royal official, begging Jesus to come save his son. He's not interested if Jesus is the God-man come to save earth. He doesn't care if Jesus just fulfilled prophecy or not. He's just interested in healing his son. So Jesus says this to him in verse 49. He says this to Jesus. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Jesus has compassion on this man and his son. So in verse 50. Go, Jesus told him, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. Notice he doesn't come to faith yet in Jesus. He says it just believed what Jesus had said there, then departed. We've got to give some credit here. This, this guy takes Jesus at his word, doesn't he? He had wanted Jesus to come himself, do whatever magic, hocus pocus, to heal his son right there. But he goes... Without Jesus following him. Now, this is a 25-mile journey, almost all downhill. I'll, I'll bet this guy's just trucking, don't you? I bet he's like running down the hill. I bet this guy's moving. And, and then he looks up ahead, and he sees his servants, as in plural, number of them. The Bible doesn't tell us here, but it, the time it takes from when he sees his servants and when he's getting to them coming up the hill, I, I bet... This guy's holding on to faith. And yet there had to have been this apprehension, don't you think, in the official's mind? Why, why are the servants coming? Why, why, why'd you bring everybody? Who's like watching the house? Who's, who's watching my son? The thought had to enter his mind. Hey, he's dead. Boy, I've got to tell you, it's hard to hang on to faith in moments like this, but hang on to faith. It's in times like this that we have to hold on to Jesus. Where you go, I don't see the answer yet, but I'm going to keep my eyes on Jesus. You see what I'm saying? The royal official gets to his servants. In verse 51, I love this. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that his boy was alive. Oh, Oh, the joy. I'm guessing dancing, right? Wouldn't you just be dancing on the trail? You can almost hear them breathing heavily like they've been running up. He's been running down. There's like, ah, he's, he's alive. He's alive. Look at this, verse 52. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. They answered, the father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. The royal official is putting two and two together. This is the next day. He had been traveling all the while. He is greeted by his servants. Now the royal official could just have said to himself, oh, the doctor's medicines finally worked. Whatever it was, I'm thankful he's alive. 
Maybe it was Jesus, maybe not, but anyway, he was healed. That's all that matters. But that's not what the royal official did. He held on to the words of Jesus in faith. And look what that faith produced in him. This is powerful. Verse 53, second half. So he himself believed. He's regenerated. He's saved. Along with his whole household. Mamas, daddies, you believe. Lead your kids to Jesus. Let them see your belief so they follow Jesus. This new belief of this, this guy in Jesus to be the Son of God would have been at great cost to himself. I mean, don't you imagine that King Herod would be pretty ticked off to find out one of his main dudes is like following Jesus now, a disciple of Jesus? Now check this out, check this out. By Jesus healing the man's son physically, the great physician moved to heal this man spiritually. That's powerful. That's powerful. Different scenario, same outcome as the woman at the well. She had been regenerated, and that led to her friends in the village coming to faith in Christ Jesus. This guy understood. It wasn't just the healing. It was the healer that needed to place his faith in. And that led to his entire household Getting saved. Look at verse 54. Now this was, about the se- this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Jesus had done tons of miracles in Judea and in Jerusalem, but this was the second sign that he had done in Galilee. And specifically in Cana, this tiny little village. This act of healing was the second of eight Major signs the Apostle John is going to record for us in this book of John as proof of Jesus, as Jesus is the Messiah. Now, what is the big picture of this passage that we've studied today? Well, let me set this up for you by asking the question. What is the one sin that is the ultimate damning sin? Don't say it out loud. Think about it. What's the ultimate sin that would keep you out of heaven? The ultimate damning sin. Here it is. Unbelief is the damning sin that will send you to hell because all other sins are forgiven for those who repent and believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. I'll give you a moment. Unbelief is the damning sin that will send you to hell because all other sins are forgiven for those who repent and believe in Christ Jesus as Savior and Lord. Now here's the thing that makes it so difficult for unbelievers. Satan, who is described by Scripture as the God of this world, or little g God, right, has blinded the minds of unbelieving, the unbelieving so they can't see the light of Christ. They have been blinded by Satan. They simply can't see the light of Jesus. Now you need to know that sometimes God himself hardens unbelievers' hearts as an act of judgment for their unbelief. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. This is Jesus as he quotes Isaiah the prophet and he talks about some of the religious leaders that were opposing Jesus right there. He talks about them. John 12, verse 39. This is why... 
They were unable to believe. This is Jesus talking. Because, I, because Isaiah also said, he has blinded their eyes, talking about God, and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes or understand with their hearts, and in turn would heal them. For you guys reading through the Bible together with us as a church, thank you for doing that. At Bentry, you saw this in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus just a few weeks ago when it tells us that the Pharaoh had hardened his own heart. Do you remember that towards the Israelites? But it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, didn't it? Here's what I want us to see. The sin of unbelief is rejection of the saving truth of God presented to us in the Bible. The sin of unbelief is the rejection of the saving truth from God presented to us in the Bible, right here. The truth is here. The last few weeks we have looked at this key verse in Scripture when Jesus says to us in John 14, 6, Jesus told them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is an exclusive truth claim. Remember we said a few weeks ago, it can't be kind of true. It's either totally true or totally false. And that means this, write this down, unbelief is a rejection of Jesus Christ who is the saving truth of God incarnate. Unbelief is a rejection of Jesus Christ who is the saving truth of God incarnate. So as we study the Gospel of John and even the other three synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, well, and let me just throw it out there that much of the New Testament, we find these stories that describe different levels of unbelief, don't we? Think through these with me. Four levels of unbelief. Look at this first one. The first level of unbelief is a lack of hearing the, other, uh, the offer of salvation. The first level of unbelief is the lack of hearing the offer of salvation. This is why we're called by Jesus to go across the street and share the gospel, across the living room sometimes, and to the ends of the earth to share the gospel and everywhere in between. These people are ready to hear the gospel and respond. This is the first level of unbelief. So what is required for someone to hear the offer of salvation? What is it? First, someone has to, to present the gospel to them. I mean, that's what Paul's teaching in Romans 10, 13 through 15. That's the imperative of the Great Commission, too, of Matthew 28. Second, the Holy Spirit must give them spiritual eyes and ears to receive and believe God's sovereign gift of saving faith. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. This is not an either-or, it's a both-and requirement for hearing in and understanding the way of God's offer of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's the first level. Second level of unbelief is this, lack of information. Second level of unbelief is a lack of information. 
Now this one's a little harder because it's similar to the first level, but different in this respect. These guys need more than just exposure to the person of Christ, and at this level, they are less prepared to believe. It's like they're further away. Martin Luther said that the gospel is clear enough that even a child can understand it. I saw that this week. It's not a complicated philosophical theory that requires this great intelligence and learning before you can comprehend it. It's basically A, B, C, right? A, you admit that you are a sinner. This is perhaps the greatest obstacle for most folks to get over. To go that I'm screwed up, I'm sinful. Most of us want to think of ourselves as, I'm basically a good guy. People certainly... I'm not deserving of eternal punishment separated from a holy God. No, 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 I'm pretty good. B, you must believe in your heart that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be, the perfect Son of God sent by the Father to deal with our greatest problem, sin, and to reconcile us back to the Father. C, you must confess that Jesus is Lord, as the Apostle Paul says in Romans 10, 9, and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart man believes and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Our admitting, believing, and confessing is all a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. That's not from us. We do it, but it's driven by God. The hymn writer says, What more could he say than to you he has said? In his written word, his incarnate word. All right, the third level. You ready? Third level of unbelief is a perceived lack of evidence. The third level of unbelief is perceived lack of evidence. Notice that I didn't say lack of evidence to base their faith in Jesus. They just don't want to look at the evidence that's before them. They want more than this. The problem with these first three reasons for unbelief is that someone may hear the message perfectly with their ears, and it may even have all the information relevant to the gospel and may even have an abundance of evidence but they cannot believe it without the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit moving it from here to here. Holy Spirit applies it to our hearts. Holy Spirit wakes us from the dead. The noted atheist philosopher Bertrand Russell, I just read a book from him this week, horrible book, don't read it. It's the history of philosophy. If you meet God after you die, Someone asked him this, if you meet God after you die, what will you say to him to justify your unbelief? <laughs> Russell snapped back, I'll tell him that he did not give me enough evidence. Really? Really? You're going to say to a holy God, you didn't give me enough evidence. I don't think that will be true. I wonder how that worked out for him. Because when you drill down on this case of unbelief, you find that it has less to do with a lack of evidence, doesn't it? 
and more to do with a, an autonomous ideology that says, I don't want there to be a God. I'm God. No amount of evidence would persuade this kind of person. That's why we need the Holy Spirit of God to give us life through the Son, Jesus Christ, at the direction of God the Father. This leads us to the fourth and most deadly unbelief. Here it is. The fourth level of unbelief is a deliberate hardness of heart. The fourth level of unbelief is a deliberate hardness of heart. We saw this with Pharaoh, didn't we? In the Old Testament, Exodus. The fourth level is usually found, funny enough, in the extremely religious and self-righteous of the world. This is the determined unbelief. This is the kind of unbelief that says, I understand what the Bible says, and I've determined not to believe it. Jesus ran into this all the time. With the Pharisees and the Sadducees were this quintessential type of this kind of unbelief. In Matthew 24, Jesus casts out demons, and uh, everyone sees this. Look at this, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and unable to speak, was brought to him. He, Jesus, healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded by this. Could this be the son of David? They're saying, this, this could be the, the Messiah. When the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. These Pharisees see the evidence, but they decide, decide the exact opposite of the truth that Jesus is the Messiah. Even the other people at least were open to the truth, weren't they? And, and yet... These level four unbelievers know not only is Jesus not the Son of God, he's Satan. He's Satan. That's some serious unbelief. By the way, that is why the self-proclaimed progressive liberal church in America, those people are so hard to teach with the truth. They don't think they, they're sinful. They don't think there is sin. They don't have any. Why would I need a Savior when I don't need a Savior? And why do you... Do you need a Savior to turn to when you are your own Savior? That's level four unbelief. Are you with me? And this morning I thought about it. There was actually a, a level five, too. You don't have a note for this. You can just jot it down. It's really complete indifference and apathy to all things of God. If you think about it, the level four guy, the atheist, at least he's determined to unbeliever. At least he's considered God and dismissed them. Level five is the zombies you and I walk around every day. They're not interested in God and God and all. It's like just a yawn. Oh. That's where a lot of folks are today. Our study today of the Galileans and their unbelief at the level three is this classic example of Jesus moving someone from level three of perceived lack of information to saving faith in Jesus. They repent of their sins, of unbelief, and that is the first repenting that has to take place, isn't it, in becoming a Christian, a Christ follower. Now, what I find really interesting is that when Jesus came to save the world from their sin, no one really wanted a Savior who would save the world. I mean, think about it. 
The Jews wanted a Savior of Jerusalem. The Samaritans, they wanted a Savior of Samaria. The Greeks, they wanted to save Greece. The Romans, they want to save Rome. But we are always wanting to say, well, let's make America great again. Let's save America. The Russians want to save Russia. The Ukrainians want to save themselves from Russia. But Jesus is not that kind of Savior, is he? Jesus, he is the Savior of the world. <laughs> Jesus appeared on earth for men of all races in order that he might die for them and be a means of salvation. Most of the time when we read the word world, it is the Greek word cosmos, which translates the human race. But later in the chapters of John, the Greek word for cosmos denotes the human race in opposition to God. Like the world is all opposed to Christ Jesus, that is why it is so incredible that God calls people, calls to himself a people, he calls them to faith in Christ Jesus out of that. It's that doctrine right there that we find the night before Jesus was betrayed. Look at this. John 13, 1. Before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a beautiful picture. Now watch. Jesus goes even further in making the distinction of the world and those who we call his own out of the world, praying on behalf of his followers, his disciples, and you. He prays this to God. Watch this, John 17, 9. He says, I pray for them. I am praying for the world, but I'm praying, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, because they are yours. Do you see this? Don't miss it. Where is your faith? Is it saving faith? Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Are you looking for a miracle? Maybe that something that would prove that He is the Son of God in your life. Listen, the step that you need to take right here, right now, is in this passage. Believe. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you and your words have cut us to the heart that we can't be our own Savior. As you just continue in the attitude of prayer, let me just repeat the offer. If you're not a Christian, just look up here at me. It's as easy as A, B, C. First, admit that you're a sinner, that you sin. Now listen, any sin would separate you from a holy God, wouldn't it? So are you guilty of more than one? <laughs> I had more than one this morning. Admitting that you can't save yourself is the first thing. Admitting that you're sinful. Second thing, look here. Believing that Jesus can save you. That he has the power as the Son of God 
to pay for your sins and give you his righteousness. Just simply believe in your heart and confess your, with your lips that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. You will be saved. And that's C, isn't it? Confess. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Do you see what we're saying? Just pray that right now. God, I believe you are the Son of God. I admit that I cannot save myself. I believe that you are the Son of God, and I confess that now with my lips. Listen, if that is you, you are a believer. And, and I get it. You're messed up. Maybe, maybe you're addicted to alcohol out there, and you go, I, I can't keep from drinking. Maybe you're uh, uh, addicted somehow to pornography or some other form of sin, and you go, well, it's time to stop. Time to repent of that. God can break that addiction. Simply admit, believe, and confess, and start to follow Jesus. End your prayer like this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.